Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome to the fourth episode of Unscripted. This week we've got an exclusive for you. We're going to be talking about the Muhammad Enwazi tapes. These tapes are from the first interview that Muhammad Enwazi did when he got back from his trip to Tanzania with a colleague of mine, Asim Qureshi. As always, everybody here is speaking on their own behalf. They're not speaking on behalf of any organisation or any any groups that they might be affiliated with. As always, we have our regular team, Nadim Daoud, academic and historian, Yasmin Khatun, journalist and broadcaster, and myself, Kerry Bullivant, who's the activist here. So, Nadim, can you uh, talk us through the, through the beginning of these tapes that we've got exclusive access to? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Yeah, uh, I think... Listening to these tapes, the ones we had access to anyway, um, I think very importantly it provides a lot of context into what this individual was like at the time. So you know we've, we've heard a lot about uh, his journey, but they, these are his own words, you know, in his own sort of way you know, that he's describing what's happened, what's taken place. And I think that's very, very important to understand a lot of things. I think it's very important to understand what he was like at that time and what he was feeling about being stopped and being you know, harassed, prolonged harassment mm-hmm. by British security uh, services. But I think more, most importantly, it really highlights the sort of almost you know, in, intentional nature of MI5 or the British security services in that they allowed these three lads to travel from Britain to, I think it was... Tanzania. Uh, Tanzania. No, sorry, they, they went to Europe first and then went to Tanzania. So they allowed them to go to two different countries before they were actually stopped and then actually, you know, for the first time, being told that, okay, no, you're refused entry into Tanzania. So they actually went on a very, very long journey to be told that they weren't allowed to be here basically and in one of the tapes he mentions that you know they were on their way back to the airport in Tanzania and they asked the or who who appeared to be the head of you know the immigration department or whatever it was uh, that they were seeing uh, a guy called Emmanuel uh, who then very candidly said look <clears throat> it wasn't us we actually don't have a problem with you it was British security services and he provided a note that they had received and, and he said look these guys told us to stop you um, as soon as you arrived and then put you back on an airplane back. So the question that you know, really sort of came to my mind was, if that was the case, if British intelligence knew that they were going to be refused entry into Tanzania, then why not stop them at the border in England? Um, and again, I said it's almost highlighting the deliberate and intentional nature. And I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying that this that therefore justifies what these guys have done or what uh, Muhammad al-Mazi has done, by no means and by no stretch of the imagination does that uh, th- th- does this constitute a justification. But it, it raises an important question, doesn't it, about the choice of tactics that the security services use. Why would you let him spend first two days in Amsterdam and then let them fly all the way out to uh, Tanzania before stopping them? It's clear from these tapes that they were under surveillance before this trip as well. And it seems to be quite close surveillance. Yasmin, what are your thoughts on why let them go to a country like that? 
Um, a number of things actually um, come to mind. The first thing I do want to say before I say anything else is whilst we are speaking about these tapes, I think what's important to any of our listeners to remember is we're speaking about Mohammed and Wazi before Jihadi John. We're speaking yeah. about Mohammed and Wazi a couple years before these uh, videos and whatever it is that that you're seeing now so and and I think he seems like well, at, at this uh, stage at this stage when this recording is done we're 5 years prior yeah. to yeah. Um, exactly what, what, this is a young man who's just see. graduated he's just graduated he's just gone on holiday after graduating the videos you hear him in the, in the tapes you can hear him saying you know, he's just graduated, so he's about 21, 22 years old, football playing, get a young man who's travelling with his friends, goes to Amsterdam, a couple of days there, and then gets stopped in the middle of Africa. I've been to Africa. I've been to Central Africa. And um, when you uh, arrive into these airports, um, uh, there are um, uh, armed personnel everywhere. It's not, it's not the uh, nicest uh, place to come into and then uh, to be stopped. Um, in these tapes, we hear about the way he was interrogated. We hear about the journey that was taken. And we hear about Kalashnikovs. And it's actually, you feel like he's almost in this very vulnerable position almost. And, and it's something that I've experienced myself. Um, when I traveled to Kar last year, I was stopped at the airport. I was stopped en route to Turkey, um, which we, which we uh, flied through. I was with my brother. I was with a camera crew. I was with and tra- traveling with an NGO. Yet, as as a Muslim, I was stopped. And when you when I when you hear the questions that he was asked, I know we heard some of we heard a little bit of these tapes that we've just listened to um, in the Guardian extract. But he was asked about what he thought about the war in Afghanistan, what he thought about Jews, what he thought about nine eleven, what he thought about seven seven. I was asked about what I thought about Syria, what I thought about the war that was taking place there. And one of the quotes that I listened to, well, what he said in these tapes, really, really made me think. You imagine yourself as a young Brit traveling to wherever it be. And he says, I'm a British citizen. My government is threatening me and throwing allegations at me. Assuming guilt, right? Yeah. And this is one of the fundamental problems with these sorts of systems is the, the presumption of guilt rather than the presumption of innocence. And we, we've seen that in, in some of the worst years, 90,000 people getting stopped at Schedule 7 stops. You're, you're uh, 135 times more likely to be stopped and held for over an hour if you're Pakistani than if you're white, and this does lead to a feeling within the community that these are these are racist policies. What's your feeling on that, Nadim? It's interesting that you say that because when I was listening to those tapes, uh, and again the little that we listened to, it's it's almost as if uh, you know you say that they're assuming he's guilty, but I almost get the feeling that. They, they, they know he's not guilty. Uh, I think he makes a point uh, in one of the tapes where he says, you know, these guys basically said, we've talked to your parents and we've talked to um, a, a specific person, which was his fiancé at the time. He doesn't give a name or anything like that, but he says, we talked to your fiancé. And he makes a point and he says, well, if you talk to my fiancé, then you know I had plans to come back and get married. And, and sort of, you know, obviously we, we don't hear the words in the interrogator and like that, but from his words and what he sort of describes, the situation is, yeah, that actually, yeah, we did, we did know that. So it's not, it's almost like it's not, they're not assuming that he's guilty. They're sort of almost engineering a guilt and saying, well, you know, we, we are going to, we are going to say that you're going to Somalia and, and that's the way it's going to be. We know you weren't going to go there. We know you're not guilty, but we are going to say that regardless. <laughs> uh, and it's almost sort of coaxing him into accepting this, this narrative, this this guilt, and saying, "Yeah, yeah, I was going to Somalia, and I was going to engage in such activities." Well, he, he says 
He says a couple of times that he felt they were trying to put words into his mouth. Exactly. Um, And and I mean, you look at it on the prima facie evidence. It's a guy who's just finished his exams, just finished probably a stressful period as he as he's passed his degree. He's got a job waiting for him. He's got a fiance waiting for him, and he spent some time in Amsterdam with his mates, and they're they're going on a safari. That seems a very plausible outcome. The fact of the matter is, even if it isn't. How does ruining his potential marriage make him less dangerous? I don't understand that. Can I make a quick point, Nadim, just on that safari note? Um, one of the things um, that he mentions in the tapes is his clothing, right? Um, so you mentioned the safari. So he's got this big green jacket. And for some reason, um, those who are interrogating him decide to pull that out. And this comes into play with a lot of, our, you know, the way people dress, the way people look, mm. sort of targeting certain forms or certain uh, uh, styles of dress because this what um, um, showcases some sort of guilt. So he's got his safari jacket and it's like, oh, okay, well, this looks like the type of uh, jacket which would make you a jihadi of sorts. And then he and then he points out a, a Rockwell or something else which he calls a stylish garment, which they completely ignore. But that sort of, you know, that sort of idea where little things that you have are being picked upon and saying, oh, well, look, this would definitely put you into the jihadi circle. Mm, right. Um, I just wanted to make a point as well, sort of stepping outside of the tapes a little bit. Um, we've seen over this past week a lot of sort of interviews with people that sort of knew him um, and sort of these things coming to light saying, uh, I read one account that you know um, some of his classmates said he was a, a drug user and uh, used to drink alcohol and this kind of thing. And that he was a bit of a loner. And, and, and so it sort of, whether that's true or not, uh, it sort of brings into question, well, if that was the case, then, you know, why would that type of individual be going to, uh, to uh, Somalia in the first place? Um, and again, it sort of brings into that whole discussion about, okay, um, you know, was there any evidence prior to this accusation that Muhammad Amwazi and his friends were going to Somalia? Well, I, c- I can say that Kays are going to be releasing some evidence soon about how all of this started. We can't talk about that here. I mean, today we're, we're, we're talking about these tapes that we've got exclusive first access to. And I think I want to talk a little bit about the way he was held and, and the sleeping on the cell floor in, in Tanzania and the mosquitoes and the lizards and, and the prison cell there. That must have been quite a harrowing experience. What do you think? In terms of one being in any foreign country and then being locked up, not knowing, I think when he when he mentions being locked up, he does say, um, he thought the person that he was with was outside and then he realises that the, the individual was no longer there and that they were then left in this cell not knowing where to go, how to go, where, you know, where they'd be able to go and where they'd end up. They, they, think, were, they were told they were going to be taken to their hotel, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. And then, and then they, they didn't know what was happening. The individual they were with had left them. Obviously, it's a frightening experience. I mean, when you're, when you're in the middle of Africa and he mentions this, you know, uh, the mosquitoes, the, the the climate, it is not. I think we have to realise it's not like being, um, you know, being picked up off the streets in the UK and sort of dropped into a cell. It's not the same thing. It's, it doesn't, it doesn't mm. feel like the same thing. When I, um, and then this goes back to my own experiences in Africa, when I, when I crossed through northern Nigeria into Chad, you know, there are military armed personnel everywhere. You know, when your phone is snatched from your hand, as it was from mine, it's frightening because these guys have guns, um, you know, ready to fire. Mm. I think the whole situation must have been very telling. Um, one of the things that we keep hearing from a lot of the uh, the analysts is, look, if if the security services are saying that he's 
he's dangerous if they've got intelligence then it, it's the right thing for them to do to, to stop him but as Nadim said well if you need to stop him then why let him go all the way to Tanzania and I think Nadim what's your, what's your opinion on this idea that the security services always get it right I well I, I don't think that's necessarily true that you know this whole idea that because if we're looking at this particular case and cases like this, you know, you're trying to really judge intent, uh, and it's almost like a minority report situation where you're sort of saying mm-hmm. these people are guilty of doing a crime before they, they've committed a crime, and you know, I think that's a very dangerous place to be because you know these these arguments that they're always right or they've got the information or intelligence, well, there's no crime actually being committed, and you know, we've we've heard about cases where people have been referred as young as nine years old to channel project now really what crime uh, what sort of political or terrorist activities a nine-year-old really going to be engaged in and there's many many other examples where you know uh, the case of but there's you know Barbara Ahmed who uh, you know sort of but on this on this particular note I, th- I think there is um, there is the security services have have a job to do we know that, right? They yeah. have a job to do. They have a responsibility to um, uh, British society to protect um, the people's uh, living here here in the United Kingdom um, uh, as their job, right? That they have they have a very clear sort of job to do. Now, what we, we have we, to we ask, what we to have to ask, yeah, and what we have to ask though is, they stop this this guy and and his friends in Tanzania. Now, for what reason were they watching him? Did they have reason to stop him there? Because they're not saying anything, are they? They're not saying he had done something before that for them to have had reason to be following and spying on him. Rather, what it seemed like, from especially from what the from from all of the evidence that we have seen, is that simply it was because it was a Muslim man traveling with other Muslim men to a country which was uh, not even a bordering, but you know, close by to another country which he could have possibly traveled to join some sort of jihad like we've seen with so many individuals who are stopped all over all over the world, not even here in Britain like I mentioned earlier where individuals are asked where they're traveling to just simply for what coming in and out of Britain yeah I think you know the political situation does sort of end up dictating how security services act and you know it's almost a case of political expediency yeah and the, the examples that I would give is sort of just just after World War one when when the Jewish community uh, were facing sort of increased danger in Europe, and they were migrating over here to Britain, uh, so just just before World War One, sorry, uh, they were actually put into internment camps. Um, so the Jewish mm. community were facing you know a lot of anti-Semitism in mainland Europe, and they came to Britain in the hopes that actually you know they, they might have some safety, and they were actually placed into internment camps. And is that a case of the security services getting it right? Uh, and I think people have to argue that you know no, it wasn't. Well, we've, we've seen in, well, even in my case, that the security services got it completely wrong. In the Iraq dossier, the, the security services got it completely wrong. Look, they're, 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 Mars and Beg, they're, they're human beings, and they have a very tough job to do to, to keep us all safe. But they're not infallible, and there has to be accountability. And if their actions are, are not good tactics then we have to be living in a society where we are open to question those tactics and question if they're doing the right thing. Are they making the situation worse? I, I want to talk a little bit just before we end about the uh, the interrogations with uh, 
uh, Nick and Fernandez, the, the Secret Service agents in Holland and then again in the UK when he's questioned by the police. Yasmin, can you, can you talk us through the, the basics of that? Uh, well, obviously, so these, they're being asked all of these questions regarding what they think of these different environments. They're being told what they want to do, why they, you know, why they, it's almost as though Somalia is being pushed into a situation. He's, he mm. mentions finger pointing, he mentions well, maps, th- he, he mentions this I sort think, of targeting and saying, this is where you want to go, right? I think if I wanted to use uh, safari as an excuse to go to Somalia, wouldn't you just go to Kenya? It's a lot closer. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, it, this is what he says, isn't it? This is what he says when, 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 when he's been shown this this map and being said, told, well, uh, you want to go to here, right? It's almost like he's he's trying to push this onto the guy, and then and then Mohammed um, reacts by sort of saying, well, I, there's a whole country in between. If I wanted to go there, you know what I mean? I, I might have had that in my travel plans. I'm here, and he even mentions dates. He mentions his flight dates and says. This is the day I was meant to arrive. This is the day I was meant to return. And my only, and then he's asked about um, what other plane tickets he has, and he says he has many, no, none other. The only yeah. tickets he has is literally just to go there and then come back. I think that this, uh, what we see again though, is this thing where you get questioned again and again and asked the same questions. So he's questioned in Tanzania. You hear that frustration he's questioned, in his voice. He's questioned in Holland and he's questioned again in England. And he says, he says a couple of times, they ask me all of the same questions. And this is one of the common tactics of the security services to basically try and trip you up and, and, and spot differences in your uh, different statements that you give. But I've been th- I've been through that myself. It's very very tiring and exhausting process, constantly asking these questions. And yeah, it, he says at one point. He actually says it, at one point. Well, we actually just got off the plane and uh, we were actually glad that someone provided us some food. Sorry, the ship. I think he said. Yeah, she says we got off the ship and someone provided us some food and we were very glad to have that there. If I can just make one quick point, um, it was very interesting listening to the tapes because you know from his perspective. It's a very one-sided conversation where he's saying, well, they asked us this and they said, and Nick said he would be in touch and they told us this and they told us to be here. Uh, And whenever they asked a question, it almost seemed to be ignored or laughed at. Um, So from his perspective, it seems like a very one-sided conversation or a discussion or a dialogue, exactly. Um, Which, again, just adds to the disorientation of the situation. I think, as Yasmin mentioned earlier, you know, they're in the middle of Africa, uh, people with Kalashnikovs tinted out jeep and it, with it, in, in, then they go to a cell where mosquitoes and they're sleeping on the floor. So it's just adding to the disorientation where you're not being provided any, you, you don't know why this is happening. You have no information I think, uh, of why this is being done to I, you. And, and just to add to that, I think one of the most, for a young Brit to be out in, um, to be out there, one of the things he mentions is when he asks the officials, you know, like, so what exactly is happening? And then the guy laughs it off and says, well, it's not um, the Tanzanian government at the helm of this. You know, it's, it's, your, it's your own government. Yeah. OK, I think we'll, we'll sort of wrap it up here. Any last thoughts from you guys on, on what we can what we've learned from these tapes and, and, and what we can take away from all of this? What I would have to say is sort of almost stressed that, you know, we really do need to look at the tactics of uh, security services and you know, I, and I say that again not justifying anything that um, Mohamed Mwazi has done since then or anything that he will be doing in the future but we really need to look uh, closely at the tactics used by our security services. At the moment from what we can sort of glean from these tapes 
it really doesn't come across that the security services are there for the best interests of you know the individuals living in this country. You know, again, pointing out the fact that they allowed these individuals to travel all the way to Tanzania before being stopped in you know a third world country, people with guns, and then made to sleep on a cell uh, with the mosquitoes and whatever have you. Why did they not just stop them in England and say, well, you know what, we have suspicion to believe that you're going to go to, to, to Somalia. Why not stop them at that point? So I think we really do need to look at some of these tactics used by the security services because at that point, when Mohamed Amaziz is talking on these tapes, it really doesn't seem that he he is going to become the extremist that he uh, he has. Um, so we really need well, to look at these tactics he, and examine... He, he spends two years after this trying to clear his name and finding a, a, a wall of secrecy and no accountability. Yasmin, what, what, what are your thoughts on, on, I think, on these um, Nadim, I think Nadim hit the nail on the head there, where um, when you're listening to these tapes, you cannot imagine that this young man, the man that's speaking in these tapes, is the same guy in those videos. It's just, it's, it's not something that is believable. You can't, I can't like fit that idea into my head that this is the same person and that's what I think is the most worrying thing that sort of uh, leaves me um, I definitely think the tapes are very interesting you get a glimpse into the man that Mohammed Mwazi was before he became this this villain uh, Jihadi John and I think when everybody else gets to listen to them it will I think move the debate on a little bit and, and raise some interesting questions but anyway we'll leave it there for today Jazakallah for listening and uh, tune in again Take care, everybody, and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.